1848, outside the Italian city of Verona, cannonballs cut across the sky as two armies exchanged fire near the village of Santa Lucia. Just behind the front lines, a 17-year-old Austrian colonel looked on approvingly as his battalion surged through a cloud of rifle smoke, swiftly overwhelming the much larger Italian squadron. This wasn't any ordinary young officer, but Archduke Franz Josef, second in line to the throne of Austria. The Italians were fighting for independence from the Austrian Empire, and Franz Josef was there to help squash the revolution. But his presence was also a ploy to help grease the wheels of his ascent to the throne. The Austrian commander watched as a cannonball landed a few paces away from Franz Josef. The young Archduke barely flinched. The commander smiled, perceiving what the boy's mother had long seen in him, a brave, headstrong young man born to lead. That evening, Franz Josef wrote home to his mother, bragging that he was overjoyed to hear the whistle of the cannon fire. He also praised the harsh discipline from the officers, writing merrily, Here, whoever does not do as he is told is arrested and severely punished, and be he a prince or a priest. By the end of that year, the young man would be putting his authoritarian impulses to work, beginning his nearly 70-year reign as Emperor of Austria. A reign that would mark not only the collapse of the Habsburg dynasty, but the crumbling of the old European order. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. This season, we're exploring the lives of three despot monarchs who ruled in the decades leading up to the First World War. King Leopold II of Belgium, Emperor Franz Josef I of Austria-Hungary, and the three Pashas of the Ottoman Empire. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we're diving into the rise of Emperor Franz Josef I. We'll track his upbringing as a scion of the Habsburg dynasty and his mother's efforts to install him as the ruler of Austria. We'll also look at the young emperor's violent early years and the measures he took to secure power. Next week, we'll explore how Franz Josef brought Austria and Hungary together in a dual monarchy with himself as the head of both. We'll also chronicle the devastating personal losses that marked his later life and see how his decisions triggered the bloodiest conflict in human history. All of that and more is coming up. Stay with us. Franz Josef I was the last monarch of the Habsburg dynasty, a noble lineage that had ruled the Holy Roman Empire for over three centuries. During his long reign, one of the longest in European history, he led this enduring empire into the modern era. Unlike some of the rulers profiled on our show, Franz Josef wasn't a bloodthirsty tyrant who committed mass atrocities or a Machiavellian villain scheming and clawing his way to power. 
Nor was he a fervent nationalist like the 20th century despots who would emerge a generation after him. Instead, there were two driving forces behind Franz Josef's rule. The first was a desire to unify and stabilize the empire, expressed in his motto, Viribus Unitis, with united forces. The second was an unquestioning belief in the divine right of kings, the doctrine that his rule was the direct decree of God. As his old-fashioned values might suggest, Franz Josef was averse to modernity in all its forms. He avoided new technology like telephones and elevators. He even demanded that documents be written out in longhand rather than typed. When Theodore Roosevelt visited Franz Josef in 1910, the monarch declared, You see in me the last European monarch of the old school. He knew that he represented an old guard that was in constant conflict with the modern world. And no matter how long he reigned, modernity would triumph in the end. Before his fight against modernity and progress, Franz Josef's young life was dominated by the outsized influence of his mother, the Archduchess Sophie. Strong-willed and ambitious, observers joked that Sophie was the only man at court. Early in her marriage, Sophie had expected her husband, Archduke Franz Karl, to be named emperor in place of his older brother, Ferdinand. Likely resulting from inbreeding, Ferdinand lived with numerous physical and mental conditions, including epilepsy, speech problems, and difficulty moving about on his own. But certain factions in the government encouraged Ferdinand to claim his rightful place as first in line to the throne. Archduchess Sophie never got over the disappointment of her husband and herself being passed over. So she ensured that if she couldn't be the wife of an emperor, she would be the mother of one. Born in 1830 at the palace of Schönbrunn, Franz Josef, or Franzi as his parents and siblings called him, was the first of three brothers and two sisters. As the oldest, Franzi was the next in the royal lineage after their father, since their infirm uncle Ferdinand had no children. As a boy, Franzi was thoughtful and quiet, an excellent dancer who loved wearing fine clothes. He had a comfortable, oddly normal childhood. His father played with the boys when he was home, and his mother read adventure stories to them in the evenings. But Franzi's parents, especially Sophie, were also intent on preparing him to lead. From the age of six, Franz Josef received a strict and thorough education. He studied for upwards of 18 hours a week. By age 11, he was spending well over 40 hours a week with his lessons. It was a rigorous course of rote instruction in history, literature, languages, military tactics, and science. The aim was to equip him with knowledge and skills that would make him an effective ruler. But the strict upbringing may account for some of his rigidness and inflexibility. It was during this time that young Franz Josef developed an unshakable faith in Catholicism. The divine authority of the Catholic Church was not to be questioned, and neither was the authority granted by the Church to the Emperor. As a child, Franzi loved playing with toy soldiers, watching sentries march, and dressing in costume uniforms. At age 13, the military games became real. 
Franzi was made colonel-in-chief of Austria's 3rd Dragoon Regiment. A year later, he was leading his battalion in training exercises. Sophie was pleased at her son's progress. There was no doubt that he was prepared to lead. And on the eve of Franzi's 18th year, discord was playing out on the streets of Vienna, a perfect opportunity for the Archduchess to exploit. The year 1848 was marked by turmoil across Europe, and nowhere more than in the Austrian Empire. In the cities, workers decried the poverty brought on by the Industrial Revolution, while students cried out against the suppression of the press. In the country, a bad harvest caused unrest amid peasant farmers on feudal manors. They used their scythes as weapons against the soldiers sent to collect crops for the lords. By the beginning of 1848, when Archduke Franz Josef was not yet 18, a revolutionary fervor had taken hold of the entire continent. As historian Anatole Murad put it, nation was pitted against nation, class against class, army and police against everybody in a witch's cauldron of conflicting tensions. At any moment, the lid would blow off and the revolutionary kettle boil over. One major uprising came in Hungary, which had been under Austrian rule for decades. The locals had long been resentful of the empire's control. They wanted a constitution that guaranteed them a degree of local sovereignty. Emperor Ferdinand initially granted them an independent ministry with its own set of laws and reforms still within the monarchy. But it was an agreement made in bad faith. Soon, a Croatian official who had anti-Hungarian but pro-Habsburg leanings took over as governor of Croatia, which was then a part of the Hungarian state. This move gave the Austrians a new base of operations that could be used to overthrow the newly organized Hungarian ministry. Hungary was prepared for war. What they didn't realize was that the Austrian Empire would soon have a new ruler, one who had cut his teeth in battle and was determined to crush them, whatever it took. Coming up, Franz Josef begins his reign as the streets run red in Vienna. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals, like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own, or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 1848, 
the nation of Hungary, with its new ministry, was steps closer to becoming fully autonomous. The Austrian government responded by moving troops into the surrounding regions. A major confrontation loomed, one that threatened to open a huge rift in the center of the Austrian Empire. If Austria was going to remain intact, the Hungarian Revolution had to be vanquished. But Hungary wasn't the only fault line in the empire's unity. In March of 1848, Austria's capital city of Vienna erupted in protest. Students, arm-in-arm with striking laborers, took to the streets to rally for reforms. They demanded a constitution that would guarantee parliamentary representation, along with freedom of speech, religion, and the press. The response from those in power ranged from silence to outright hostility. Archduke Albrecht, a member of the ruling Habsburg dynasty, was riding through the crowd when a piece of wood thrown by a protester struck him in the head. Incensed, Albrecht ordered an artillery outpost to fire on the crowd. When the sergeant in charge refused to carry out the order, the Archduke commanded his soldiers to march into the crowd, assaulting the protesters with bayonets and the butts of their rifles. Emperor Ferdinand denounced the attack and offered to make concessions to appease the protesters. He even floated the possibility of drafting a constitution. Appearing in the streets, the emperor was greeted with cheers from the people. But his conciliatory proposals weren't enough, and the protests raged on for months. Karl Marx, fresh off publishing the Communist Manifesto, even came to Vienna in August to warn the demonstrators against making concessions to the emperor. He left just in time to avoid being executed by the state. Conspicuously absent from Vienna during this time was 17-year-old Franz Josef. While many of the Habsburgs had retreated to their country estates, Archduchess Sophie saw an opportunity to exploit the chaos to her son's advantage. Rather than have Franz Josef watch the fray from the sidelines, Sophie arranged for him to serve on the front lines in Italy. In the northern Italian provinces, a series of revolts sought to liberate the region from Austrian rule. Sophie reasoned that her son's bravery on the battlefield would set the stage for him to succeed his uncle as emperor. At the same time, Sophie didn't want her son's reputation to be tainted by the events in Vienna. She was revolted equally by the audacity of the protesters and the tepid response from the feeble Emperor Ferdinand. Franz Josef's distance from the city would also distance him from the emperor's actions. Sophie was shrewd enough to perceive something critical about the current state of affairs. While the uprisings across the empire had some common grievances, there was no coordination among the groups and no clear unified purpose. The Austrian Empire was a patchwork of nations with no prominent ethnic group, language, or culture. Serbs, Croats, Germans, Slovaks, Hungarian Magyars, Poles, and Italians were all among the diverse population. Consequently, the revolutions of 1848 were regional, with no collaboration between the Italian rebellion in the western part of the empire and the Hungarian uprising in the east. Each group was trying to win local sovereignty rather than topple the empire. As long as they were divided, 
the Austrian forces could subdue them one by one. Nonetheless, the various insurgencies struck at the empire with tremendous will and energy. And there were times when the Habsburgs' own soldiers identified more with the insurgents than with their leaders. In the fall of 1848, the Austrian Minister of War ordered a delegation of troops to join a battle in Hungary. But some of the troops mutinied, and a riot ensued in Vienna. A group of protesters dragged the minister from his office. By evening, his body hung from a lamppost in a city square, naked and mutilated by stab wounds. This was the final breaking point. In late October, the new Viennese field marshal, Prince Alfred Windisch Graz, mounted an aggressive effort to end the uprising in the capital. He surrounded Vienna with troops and laid siege to his own city, killing over 2,000 citizens in the process. Just before New Year's, Windisch Graz issued a proclamation amounting to state-ordered terrorism. The document called for the immediate execution of anyone taking orders from the Revolutionary Committee. Any village that harbored revolutionaries would be leveled to the ground, and the village leaders would pay with their heads for any disturbance. Windisch Graz's forces executed over two dozen people suspected of sedition. The city was under strict military control throughout the fall and winter. It was against this bloody backdrop that Franz Josef succeeded to the throne of the Habsburg dynasty. That August, Franz Josef had turned 18, and his mother was busy arranging the terms for a transfer of power. Central to her plan was the support of Prince Felix Schwarzenberg, a brilliant statesman and military strategist. Schwarzenberg sought a more central role in the government, but he didn't wish to serve under Emperor Ferdinand. The introduction of a new sovereign whose reign he could help shape from the outset would allow him to better exert his influence. To this end, his interests aligned perfectly with the Archduchess. Schwarzenberg had met Franz Josef in Italy and was impressed with the promise the young man showed. All they had to do was get Emperor Ferdinand out of the way. Schwarzenberg and Sophie worked together to implore Ferdinand to abdicate. Ferdinand, whose already frail state had been taxed by the recent turmoil, gladly obliged. On December 2, 1848, Emperor Ferdinand handed power to his grandson in a quiet ceremony, attended only by the imperial family and a few state officials. Franz Josef knelt before his uncle, and Ferdinand blessed him by making the sign of the cross on his head. He said to the new monarch, God bless you, Franzi. Be good. God will protect you. I'm happy about it all. And with that blessing, Franz Josef I rose as Emperor of the Austrian Empire. Keeping both of his given names, Franz and Josef, was a deliberate choice. Franz was inherited from his grandfather, Holy Roman Emperor Franz II, and Josef was a nod to his great-granduncle, Emperor Josef II, who is regarded as a progressive reformer. Josef had championed religious tolerance and governed with parliamentary consent. Choosing to keep his name suggested that the young emperor might be a similarly progressive force. But his other namesake, Franz II, had been a rigid autocrat. 
Once, when a doctor praised his good constitution, Franz II shot back that he never had a constitution and didn't wish to hear the word again. It was the autocratic Franz II who was the new emperor's forerunner in spirit. And any who were optimistic that Franz Josef I might usher in a new era would soon have their hopes dashed. Shortly after he took power, the 18-year-old emperor addressed a group of his subjects in Vienna. He spoke of free institutions, the spirit of the age, and equality before the law, suggesting that progressive reforms may be on the horizon. But Franz Josef's speech made clear that the chief goal of granting any rights was, in his words, to maintain the splendor of the crown undimmed and the monarchy as a whole undiminished. Anyone who expected liberal reforms from the young monarch needed only to look at the counselors he kept close to know his true intentions. Along with his mother Sophie, Franz Josef's closest advisors were Prince Schwarzenberg and the field marshals Radetzky and Windisch Graz, all of whom were fiercely militaristic. Violence tended to be their first and final course of action. Legend has it that one time when Schwarzenberg was asked to consider showing mercy toward the rebels, he retorted, Yes, it is a good idea, but we'll have a little hanging first. These men's propensity for violence was on full display in the early months of Franz Josef's reign. They showered retribution on anyone who questioned their leader's sovereignty. Coming up, Franz Josef engages in his first military campaign as emperor and settles into his role as an autocrat. Now back to the story. At the start of his reign in December 1848, Franz Josef surrounded himself with a trio of hawkish advisors, making it clear that the young emperor meant to rule with an iron fist. But the new year brought three immediate challenges to his authority, an attempt by lawmakers in Vienna to draft a constitution, an uprising in Italy, and a fierce resurgence of the rebellion in Hungary. True to their military pedigree, Franz Josef and his advisors met all three of these challenges with overwhelming force. At the beginning of 1849, a parliamentary council, the Reichstag, gathered in Kromirzisch, a city located in present-day Czech Republic. Commissioned the previous year under the approval of Emperor Ferdinand, the Reichstag was the country's first elected parliament. The officials had already begun work on the new constitution before Franz Josef took the throne. The document was to be fashioned in the mold of the American and French constitutions, establishing full representative government, stripping the emperor of his unilateral powers, and ending both state religion and nobility. The Reichstag was stopped in its tracks, and Franz Josef instead introduced his own constitution. He ultimately dissolved the Reichstag, and its members were dismissed. To make sure the lawmakers didn't rebel, the military was then sent in to patrol the area. But while the regime was willing to strong-arm lawmakers in Kramirzich, Franz Josef and his officers saved their most savage treatment for opponents in other parts of the empire. On March 12th, following a months-long armistice, the war against Austrian rule recommenced in the Italian city of Novara. 
Field Marshal Radetzky returned to Italy with a contingent of troops crushing the rebellion in days. A period of harsh retribution against the Italians followed, with massive fines imposed, land seized, and an estimated 960 people were executed. But the defining conflict of Franz Josef's first months on the throne was in Hungary. And on that front, the new emperor aimed to crush the insurrection with such ferocity that no one would dare question his authority. In April of 1849, the Hungarian resistance formed their own revolutionary government and proclaimed that the Austrian emperor had been deposed. Franz Josef could have met this challenge with restraint, negotiating with the new Hungarian government. He could have made good on his predecessor's promise of a constitution for Hungary. Instead, he called on the support of Tsar Nicholas I of Russia. The Tsar feared that a successful revolution in Hungary might spark a similar uprising in Poland, which was then under Russian control. Franz Josef fanned the flames of the Tsar's anxiety. He wrote to Nicholas that only the glorious fraternity of their empires could save modern society from certain ruin. Tsar Nicholas offered the full support of his military to squash the Hungarian rebellion. That summer, with the aid of 100,000 Russian soldiers, Franz Josef's forces resoundingly defeated the Hungarian forces near the city of Timisoara. Hungary was once again firmly under Austrian rule, though the events had done nothing to cool Hungary's hostility toward the empire. The atrocities committed by the Austrian leadership after the war only inflamed the resentment. Especially incendiary was an Austrian military leader, Baron Julius von Heinau. Von Heinau was a veritable sadist who had earned the nickname the Beast of Brescia for his torment of men, women, and children during his time on the Italian front. Von Heinau remained in charge of the subdued Hungarian lands following his army's victory. The emperor decreed that no executions be carried out without his express approval, but by that point, the beast had already been released. Despite Franz Josef's decree, over 100 Hungarian soldiers and officials were shot or hanged. In spite of Franz Josef's attempts to restrain his most violent commanders, there is no denying his responsibility in the slaughter. No other European monarch in the entire 19th century signed more death warrants than Franz Josef I did following the Hungarian Revolution. A particularly scandalous incident was the execution of Hungarian politician Lajos Batyani. Although he was technically among the rebels, Batyani had urged restraint and accommodation with the empire. Many believed his life would be spared. But they underestimated the resolve of the new emperor. At the urging of Archduchess Sophie, who disliked Batyani for a perceived personal slight, Franz Josef ordered the man's execution by hanging. On the eve of the execution, Batyani, with either a dull blade or penknife, attempted suicide. Not wishing to make the wrong kind of spectacle by dragging the bleeding man to the gallows, the officer in command shot him instead. Only to be censured for not carrying out the execution as ordered. 
With the Hungarian Revolution finally behind him, Franz Josef set out to prove that he could affect change through diplomacy as well as violence. In 1850, he worked with the King of Prussia to negotiate a territory dispute. King Frederick William IV had been making incursions into the Hesse region of Germany, sometimes erupting into violent squabbles with Austrian troops there. Fresh off his own empire's internal battles in Italy and Hungary, Franz Josef now found himself at the brink of war with a formidable foreign power. But the young emperor didn't blink as he went toe-to-toe with the Prussian king, who was 35 years his senior. Against the protests of Franz Josef's advisors, the two leaders agreed to work together to plan what future Germany would have and under whose control. It wasn't a great victory for the Austrian Empire, but it was a shrewd bit of diplomacy. It also allowed Franz Josef to demonstrate that he was not only a strong-willed commander, but also a competent administrator. Emboldened by his successes in battle and at the bargaining table, Franz Josef began to display his legendary regal demeanor. He developed a habit of wearing his military uniform in public, so much that he earned the nickname Lieutenant Redlegs in reference to the color of his army pants. Franz Josef wanted to prove not only that he could hold office as his great-granduncle had done, but that he could rule, and rule well, without anyone's help or interference. In 1851, at the age of 21, he set out to do just that. On New Year's Eve, Franz Josef issued his Sylvester patent, which dissolved the constitution he'd made earlier. No longer would he be subject to advice or oversight from Parliament. Franz Josef was, without question, an absolute monarch. His grip on the government would only tighten the following year. In April 1852, Franz Josef's most trusted advisor, Prince Felix Schwarzenberg, suffered a stroke and died. The emperor was distraught. He swiftly decreed that Schwarzenberg's duly empty role as president of the ministerial council would go unfilled. Franz Josef couldn't possibly hope to find another counselor he could trust as he had trusted Schwarzenberg. So he would rely on himself alone. From that day forth, Franz Josef would serve as both the monarch and effectively as his own prime minister. But it wouldn't go unchallenged. On February 18, 1853, as Franz Josef was walking along the city walls, a Hungarian tailor sprinted toward him with a knife. Seeing what was about to happen, a woman nearby screamed. The emperor turned, but not quickly enough. The attacker plunged his blade into Franz Josef's neck. The emperor remained under close medical supervision for days. He was weak having lost a significant amount of blood, and doctors feared that he might lose his eyesight. Almost immediately, Franz Josef's brother Maximilian, the next in line to the throne, came to Vienna. It's likely Archduchess Sophie had called him to come in case he needed to take over if Franz Josef's health took a turn for the worse. But Sophie's fears didn't materialize. The emperor made a full recovery. And when he found Maximilian waiting for him, He angrily sent his brother away, chastising him for leaving his post in Italy. 
If Maximilian saw this as a chance to seize the throne from his sibling, he would be sorely disappointed. No mere assassination attempt could undermine Franz Josef's rule. There was work to be done, and the resolute young emperor was eager to rise to the challenge. Although the rebellions of the previous decade had been defeated, the attempt on the emperor's life showed that revolutionary fervor raged on in Hungary. In the coming years, Franz Josef would dedicate himself to unifying the empire under his absolute rule. But in doing so, he would sow the seeds of its collapse. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll hear about Emperor Franz Josef's consolidation of Austria and Hungary into a dual monarchy and discover how this great ruler was himself ruled by love. For more information on Emperor Franz Josef I, among the many sources we used, we found Franz Josef I of Austria and his empire by Anatole Murad and Emperor Francis Josef by John van der Kirsta extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Dictators was written by Greg Beam, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who were far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.